So a number of years ago, I read an article about the coolest time capsules uh, that have been buried in the last uh, century that have yet to be opened. And the list that they made, my favorite on there, was the Westinghouse time capsule. The article said this, two time capsules, one in 1939 and the other one in 1965, were buried under the site of the, World State, of the New York uh, World State Fair, World's Fair. And the instructions read that both of them were to be opened uh, in exactly 6939 A.D., 5,000 years after they were signed and sealed. So the question is, what was in the time capsule? Well, apparently, in the one from 1939, the time capsule contains newsreels, seeds, a pack of camel cigarettes, a Sears and Roebuck catalog. Young people don't even know what that is. Tell them, old people. (laughs) I'll tell you. And a message for Albert Einstein, of all things. The 1965 time capsule, this one blew my mind, contains an electric toothbrush, the highest technological feat up to, to that time, freeze-dried food, a Beatles album, but they didn't tell me which one, and birth control pills. How in the world? And I love, I think it's funny to think about time capsules because you suddenly begin to realize that cultures, they really do get acclimated to themselves And we oftentimes don't think about the fact that future generations will look back on the things that we thought were pretty cool or pretty interesting and kind of laugh at them a little bit. And I mention that because the same sort of thing happens in the Bible all the time. You have here documents that were written thousands of years ago, sometimes thousands of years between authors. And any good student of the Bible knows that it's really helpful to have some kind of rudimentary knowledge about the cultures of the Bible so you don't misrepresent it or misread some of its content. Well, this morning brings us to, to just such a passage. But we have to avoid two false extremes here. You know, on the one hand, you might have a group of people that would say, well, because the Bible was written so many years ago, um, it really, it's unable to be understood by us. There is an uncrossable chasm that's been created between us and them, so there's really no possibility for real meaning. But I think that's absurd. Uh, In my experience, you know, the need to have cultural knowledge of the Bible uh, rarely swells to the point where I can't understand its basic message. No, actually, I think that uh, uh, the Bible is easily relevant across time. Take the Psalms, for instance. When's the last time you read through the Psalms and thought to yourself, That's exactly how I feel. It's amazing how fresh those things can be. No, meaning is not so fragile that it can't pass through time, I promise. But the opposite mistake to make is reading the Bible as if it was written yesterday uh, and that every story is just as crystal clear as the others. No, there's legitimate study that needs to be done in original languages and study of these contemporary cultures in which these documents were written um, so that we can help us know what God's mind is on these topics. Well, Our passage that we come to this morning, I need to tell you, is a place where the scholars, even conservative scholars who love the Bible, differ slightly on what to do with the Hebrew grammar. But I want this morning to kind of throw my hat in the mix and sort of attempt to understand what is without a question an odd passage. But if you dig in a little bit, you'll see some amazing things about the character of God. And I hope it's already apparent to you why it's a weird passage. I mean, here we have what seems to be God trying to kill Moses, the very man who he's just commissioned to lead his people out of Egypt. Why 
Why would God want to do that? Now, I've actually had experience with people who see bizarre stories like this and say to themselves, well, if that story's in the Bible, I'm not sure I can trust any story in the Bible and use it as an excuse to walk away from Christianity. You might be there this morning. But we've been looking this fall at this question of what it means to be the people of God. And and the answer to that question this morning from this passage is only going to come when we do some some good old-fashioned Bible study. So I'm going to ask you to buckle up this morning. And I'll assure you that I wouldn't trouble to take an entire Sunday morning sermon uh, on a weird question if it weren't for the fact that embedded in the explanation is a wonderful, beautiful nugget of truth that speaks very clearly to the formation of God's people. Something wonderful. So we're headed there. Just, you just got to slog through it with me. So I'm going to ask three questions this morning. The first question is, who exactly is God trying to kill here? Number two, why in the world is he trying to kill him? And then number three, what could any of this possibly have to do with me? Okay? Number one, who was the Lord trying to kill? Okay, look, zero in for a minute on verses 24 through 26, because that is the problem. Moses is on his way to Egypt to, reluctantly, fulfill God's command to lead his people out of slavery. And the key verse that you've got to focus in on is in 22 and 23, where God comes and tells Moses that I want you to go and explain something to Pharaoh. And that is that the people of Israel, these Hebrews whom you've enslaved, they are my son. That's my child, my firstborn son. Now, the whole argument is going to hinge on that one little point, but hold that thought for just a second. And then, inexplicably, it looks like Yahweh turns on Moses and decides he's going to kill him. But of course, thankfully, his wife Zipporah is there, who's ready to circumcise the son and therefore sort of keep uh, uh, the whole thing from, from happening. Now, look, I'm going to grant the fact that God was actually very specific to the Jewish people's ancestry that circumcision was absolutely vital. And yes, Moses was clearly not living in accord with Yahweh's direct command. But the death penalty? (laughs) That's the judgment here? I mean, especially after just commissioning him to be the one to bring his people and to give them a message of love and hope? I mean, honestly, you'd be right to question what this passage means, as many people have. So how in the world do we understand it, though? Well, in order to do so, I want to dive into the grammar of the Hebrew which actually every commentator, not just the ones who agree or disagree with where I'm going with it, understand is a little bit ambiguous, especially when it comes to its use of pronouns. Bear with me. We're all going back to seventh grade English this morning. The first thing you've got to understand is that the Hebrew word Moses does not appear appear anywhere in verses 24 through 26. If you have the word Moses in your translation, that's, that's an inference from the translator there. If you were to read that sentence as literally as possible, it would go like this. The Lord met him and sought to kill him. So the question then comes, what exactly is the pronoun him referring to? Now look, I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm going to lay my cards on the table that I've been very influenced by my Old Testament professor from seminary, uh, Dr. John Currid, who presently serves as the Old Testament uh, seminary professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and he's done a ton of work on this passage. And honestly, he and I have had two or three lunches over the last decade or so <laughs> where we always end up coming back to Exodus 4 because I love to hear him talk about it. But Dr. Curd's suggestion is that the hymn that's being talked about is not Moses, but it's actually Moses' firstborn son. 
Well, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 22, you find out that the name of Moses' firstborn son is a kid named Gershom. Gershom. And so God's judgment of taking the life of Moses' firstborn son was ostensibly for the fact that an uncircumcised male was what? Well, hold that thought too, because we're coming back to that. Now look, you might wonder at this point why it is that translators kind of gravitate sometimes toward the idea that God was coming after Moses. Well, the reason is why people think that is when Moses' wife, Zipporah, is talking to Moses in verse 25 and 26, what does she call him? She says, you are a, and here's the word, bridegroom of blood to me. That's what people think, obviously, that's why she's talking about Moses. But as it turns out, Dr. Kurtz done a lot of work on the translation of the word bridegroom as well. Listen to what he says. He says, the Hebrew word we have translated as bridegroom is used in the Old Testament not only to refer to bridegrooms. Sometimes it's used to refer to a son-in-law, to a father-in-law, and at one point even a mother-in-law. The basic idea of the word stresses that a person has been made part of a family and that he or she has become a blood relative through a covenant relationship. Now look, in case you think that my friend Dr. Kurd is alone in all this, you need to know that there's others who have picked up on this sort of translation problem as well. Uh, let's say this morning that you are studying from the Reformation Study Bible, which I would warmly commend to you as a great uh, study Bible. Uh, if you, there's a note on verse 24 that says this, the Hebrew there is slightly ambiguous. Most likely the attack is directed against Moses himself, perhaps because of his failure to circumcise his son. But alternatively, it may be against Moses' firstborn son, Gershom. So at least we're on the, he's on the team with the Reformation Study Bible. Alan Cole in the Tyndale Commentary series recognizes the same possibility in his commentary on the same verse. The Hebrew reads, sought to kill him, but him is ambiguous and could refer either to Moses or to Gershom. The natural presumption would, however, be Moses. But on the other hand, if the him refers to Gershom, then there's a closer link with the context, which is the death of a firstborn, as showing how Moses' firstborn nearly died. So for all these reasons, John Currid translates verse 26 and the word bridegroom as a covenant relative of blood to me. As it turns out, he's got a bunch of Jewish scholars that agree with him on this as well. So I'm coming clean this morning. If you can't tell, John Currid has convinced me. I think he's absolutely right. Because if he's correct, that's what this means. On the way to pronounce judgment on Egypt and pronounce divine sonship on the Israelites... God is preparing Moses for the kind of leadership that he has to possess if he's going to convince the Israelites that they are the firstborn of God. And he's going to do so by threatening to take the life of his oldest son. So, does that clear things up for you? <laughs> the answer, of course, is no, it doesn't clear things up. Well, wait a minute, that doesn't make it better. You get to the second question, why was he trying to kill him? I mean, why would God want to kill a little boy? Uh, for, for, the, for the seemingly peccadillo of not following a decidedly weird religious ritual called circumcision. Why would he do that? Okay, well, this is where our time capsule illustration is going to help us. Because of all the things you need to realize about that society, you need to understand that they did not have the same kind or the same quality of life aspirations that we often have. For us, we live our lives because we long for individual achievement. We look out for the prosperity of me. 
But in those particular cultures, what was first and foremost was the family's prosperity. You longed for the family to succeed. And in that culture, you wanted your family to succeed every bit as much as you did for yourself. Uh, If some member, the, the firstborn child was the one who received all the inheritance. And so if the firstborn son you were in good relationship with, you got a share of the protection. And in the same way, if the firstborn son acted shamefully, then you would bear that shame as well. This is so hard for us to understand. We are so radically individualistic. But the firstborn son was a massive hinge in in the ancient Near Eastern world of those families. Uh, Commentator Kent Hughes says this. He says, firstborn sons were important in the ancient world, as they are in many cultures today, because they signified the center and the future of the family. The oldest son had special responsibilities and privileges, including the right of the inheritance. The firstborn represented all the offspring, including the girls and the rest of the boys. The firstborn son stood for the family as a part representing the whole. In the same way, for example, that a captain of the football team would represent his team at halftime or on the the hash mark uh, for the football game. In other words, the Bible is telling us something profound about the firstborn. And in the Old Testament, in numerous places, I found four places, God actually sends a message to the Jewish people that the life of the firstborn son is mine. It's mine. I own the firstborn son. So much so that once a year, every Jewish person was required to redeem the life of their firstborn son through a sacrifice or through some kind of monetary sort of donation. In other words, It was on the head of every single family that their lives were forfeit if they didn't redeem the oldest son. So God is saying unmistakably that over every single human family, there is a debt that hangs over you. There's a debt that hangs over you. And your firstborn is liable for the way that you are living. And I realize that this sounds bizarre, but it's what everyone believed at that time. So do you see what's happening? What's happening is, is that God is calling Moses debt. Now's the time. He's saying, look, if you're going to go represent me to Pharaoh, carrying the staff of God with you, you're going to have to do so by understanding that it is costly for me to have the Hebrews as my children. God's saying, Moses, you're never going to be able to lead these people as my priest until you realize that I'm going to have to give up my firstborn, Jesus, in order to redeem my firstborn, Israel, or the church, which means us here in this room. Look, if you think this is some kind of random occurrence in the Bible, do you remember another Jewish leader who not, uh, I don't know, a book before what we're reading now, was also called to begin his mission, but before he did so, God told him to take and sacrifice his only son, Look, I think what's happening in Moses' story here with Gershom is nothing more than a a hyperlink, if you will, back to Abraham and Isaac. Remember when God calls Abraham? He then says he wants to sacrifice Isaac. You've read it a thousand times. I thought, that's really weird. And now you realize why. Because God is saying you need to understand that the life of the firstborn is mine. It belongs to me. So that's who the Lord was trying to kill. He was trying to kill Gershom. Why was he trying to kill him? Because he was calling his accounts and bringing him a lesson in humility. Now, final question. What in the world could this possibly have to do with me? How could this possibly apply? Well, before we answer that question, I really do want you to let, 
I want you to let verse 22 sink in for a second. What God is saying is, is my intention for your life is to live as my children and not as slaves. The redemption that's coming, he tells Moses, is going to be so different from what you've known. Yahweh is not going to be the kind of Lord that you've had for the last 400 years in Egypt. He, I'm going to be your father, he says. You're going to be my children. And you've got to see, this was a radical way of thinking about God in that culture. God was your despotic sovereign, not your loving father. And so my contention has been, I mean, really for years, <laughs> that there really is something about the notion of God wanting to be our father that is still amazingly transformational for God's people. There's not a whole lot of insights, at least as J.I. Packer is correct, that will completely change the way you think about your Christian life than when you get the release and finding out that he is my father. There's a guy named um, John Newton. He's the one who wrote uh, uh, Amazing Grace, who talks about the, the typical path that a Christian follows when he has a spiritual awakening. You know, when he starts out, there's, there's an initial excitement about Christianity. They're sort of broken before God. The thought that God has pardoned them for their guilt and offered them some measure of healing for the wound of sin, it thrills their soul. And so for a time, they set out on a pattern of life that's, that's decidedly religious. They read their Bibles. They, they, they go to church. They, they abandon their non-Christian influences for Christian ones. In other words, they're doing all the right things. But before too long, things, things just kind of start to shift a little bit. And having achieved, you know, maybe some measure of success over some more manageable parts of their sinful life, they start to get confident. But they don't realize that that confidence is no longer in the absolute pure grace of God. But that confidence has shifted into the fact that they've been obedient. And in fact, it's so subtle that eventually their religious record becomes the very thing that defines them, where their identity rests. And all that's well and good until it all comes in a big, giant failure. Sometimes those failures are very private. It's between you and the Lord and nobody else knows. Sometimes they get to be public. Who knows what happens? Maybe a family falls apart. Maybe somebody loses their job because of an indiscretion that they participated in. Maybe we drank too much at a party and got a DUI on the way home. Either way, suddenly people feel completely exposed. They feel like frauds. Uh, if the sin is public enough and embarrassing enough, they'll walk away from Christianity. They never look at it ever again because they're so ashamed. But even those who sort of keep it in and are able to keep it manageable, they remain double-minded, that they feel torn, two-faced, like they're living a lie. And for these Christians, and what's interesting is they'll hesitate before they call themselves a Christian because they don't have any assurance at that point. They begin to display all the attributes of the slavery that they were supposed to leave behind when they converted to Christianity. And so it deserves looking at, like, what is it that it looks like to live like a slave? It's a great question. They feel alone. They live day to day with how well they did in battling a besetting sin. They're racked with fear when they think about God. They become people-pleasing maniacs. They can't say no to anybody for fear of letting them down. These people are, slaves are totally self-centered. And, and there's no real tangible love that they can see for people outside of themselves. They don't know how to ask help from others. Honestly, they just want help for themselves. They're angry. 
angry, generally angry, deeply defensive when confronted. They don't accept criticism very well at all. They're always anxious about their friends or their money or their beauty or whatever it is that you've banked everything as being the most important to you. They become very critical, very fault-finding in other people, snapping at a moment's notice. They, They become hopeless gossips because I feel so much better in comparison to the other failures around me. They become remarkably prayerless, not because they lack discipline, but because they lack intimacy. There's no gratitude for God, really for anything, because when you think about it, they don't really think that they've received something from him. They constantly talk about themselves because they're trying to convince people that they're acceptable. They become controlling, manipulative. They've got no desire to tell other people about Jesus because you can't share what you take no joy in. It's actually a whole different sermon. But in a word, what is that? It's slavery. The very thing that God was trying to remove Egypt from in Moses. And so now we're starting to see why it was that he comes to threaten Gershom's life. God is trying to say to Moses, I'm not using you to release the Hebrews so I can set up another despotic authoritarian regime with which you can oppress other people. No. What I want you to do, Moses, is I want you to be a servant leader. I want you to leave by your brokenness, leading people into the joy of having me as their father, because that ought to be enough. And so Moses needs to have it ingrained in him that his sin is serious. Enough not only to cost him his own life, but also cost him the life of his one and only son who he dearly loves. It's a humility lesson that Moses needs. But here's the thing. Every Christian knows that actually the mistake that people often make is that that's where God wants us to stay. You know, humility very often, once it becomes sort of lived in, has this tendency to want to morph into into an unhealthy shame, which is really just a form of self-atonement to beat myself up so I can pay for my own sin. See, what happens is a son, though, who has that humility, that humbling moment of realizing this is all going to be about grace or it's not salvation at all, they have a completely different perspective on life. It looks so much different from the slave. You know, the, the, the child knows they're a big sinner. They don't need a big convincing session on that one. But that's what kept them from becoming judgmental of other people. That's the base note. You see, a son feels compassion because he knows how much he's received. He looks at others as if they are better than he. He quickly admits when he was wrong. She's, she's happy to give up her rights for others. She's not worried about their reputa- her reputation. She doesn't argue for her rights. They take joy in the success of other people's accomplishments. They're genuinely surprised when they find out that God used them in some way. <laughs> they're teachable. They're self-forgetful. They don't even remember what's going on with themselves. They know how to risk letting other people inside because God has let them inside. These people are growing in assurance that they know. They're not surprised when they sin, when they mess up. They confess to God not because they got caught, They confess to God because they miss him. (laughs) They can receive criticism with an open and humble spirit. They're self-disclosing. They're willing to be exposed to people. They're the first person to say they're sorry. Don't you see the difference? 
between living as a slave and living as a son. See, God is preparing Moses to, to, to prepare the children of Israel for this brand new kind of life, away from tyranny and oppression and into a gentle and humble reliance upon Yahweh. Why? Because God is the God who is going to face the death of his own son and not have any blood but his own to be shed in order to call his people their own. And Moses, until you understand that, you can't lead my people. You see the point. Jesus has become our covenant relative of blood. And therefore, we can become God's firstborn son. It's all about the family. And here's the deal. There is no other religion that comes close to this. Nothing comes close. And my simple question for you this morning is this, as we close. Is that your view of God? Do you relate to him as a father, as a loving father, who longs to connect with you in that way on those terms? Kent Hughes has this wonderful uh, Garrison Keeler story that he tells uh, about a hard luck family from from Lake Wobegon, Minnesota. If you don't know what that is, then probably you're older than 40 years, you're younger than 40 years old. But in the story, there's a nice, uh, very, uh, nice young Swedish woman who runs off with a mysterious Scotsman uh, who goes by the last name of Campbell. And at first, the marriage is fine. They, they have three children, three, three boys, uh, and they start to try to build a life together. But before too terribly long, the man grows restless and he leaves the marriage. He leaves the woman and she and her sons have to go back and live in Lake Wobegon uh, in disgrace. And she and her children live in a broken old down trailer, uh, dependent on the charity of family and the pity of their friends. But they always dream of a better life. Until one day, they get a letter asking for information about their family heritage, especially their connection to the Campbells, to this mysterious sort of though estranged father of theirs. Well, after confirming for the, the, the facts of the case, soon someone writes them another letter to inform them that because of their father, they are direct lineal descendants of the house of Stuart, the royal family of Scotland, an ancient royal family. And that therefore, these three are the heirs to the throne. <laughs> the letter closes with these words to the firstborn son. Listen to this. The man writes, Your Royal Highness, discovering you and your family has been the happiest accomplishment of my life. And if God in his infinite wisdom should deny me the opportunity to meet you face to face on this earth, I should still count myself the luckiest of men for this chance, however small, to restore Scotland to her former greatness. Please know that you are in my thoughts and prayers every day and that I will work with every ounce of my being to restore you from your sad exile to the lands, to the goods, and to the reverence to which you, by the will of God, are entitled. Can you imagine the transformation that would have taken place in that oldest child's life to suddenly realize that there was someone who says, I will go to no end to make sure that you don't receive the riches, the lands, and the reverence, which is yours by right. Because having been adopted into his family, we receive all of the rights and privileges that are his go to us. So that we can now say the things that come to us, we come because we are royalty. That's the gospel. 
We received a message from a far place assuring us that by virtue of our redemption in Christ, we belong to the royal household of God. And Jesus has a plan that he will not fail to execute to elevate every one of us to the greatness that we were designed to be. That's some good news. So here's the question. Is that your view of God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you bring us into that? Because we're still clouded. There's still bills to pay tomorrow. There's still loved ones that are sick. Uh, There's still a job that feels more and more unsteady. and, And honestly, it feels like it'll fade away 30 seconds after walking out of the door. And so we pray that we have your spirit to remind us that indeed you have drawn close to us, that indeed you are Israel's firstborn, that we are your firstborn son, that you have hung all the privileges on your son so that we could be joint heirs with him. But we need to be brought into that. And that means that your spirit has to draw us in. Would you do that this morning? Or we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.